welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I am joined again by my good friend, Flack Taylor, for a Cold War espionage thriller, True Story. We will be talking about the 2021 movie, The Courier, by Dominic Cook, based on the true story of one of the very important high-level GRU defectors to the West, Oleg Benkowski, and his British friend, his courier, Beyond Iron Curtain, Greville Wynne. The film, as I said, is called The Courier. It is new. It somehow slipped under the critical radar. And I think the people who most would enjoy it were conservatives have not even heard of it, even though it has a star, Benedict Cumberbatch, playing the British gentleman, businessman, Greville Wynne. So Flag and I decided to do a podcast about it and attract everybody's attention to what is the exact opposite of a John Le Carré Cold War espionage thriller. In The Courier, there's almost nothing sordid. It is not a movie about how everybody is cynical and kind of corrupt and the shadowy world of espionage has, you know, no room for considerations of love or morality or nobility, such things that are now considered old fashioned in many places. It's instead the story of the friendship between these two men, the British courier and the Soviet spy who have to trust each other with their lives and who go through an extraordinary turmoil and all of it in order to help defuse what becomes the Cuban Missile Crisis. Can I say it again? It's a true story, people, so you got to watch this movie. And that's about it for my introduction. Flag, you introduced me to this movie. When I saw Benedict Cumberbatch on the cover, I said, no, thank you. And then you said, no, you got to watch this movie. It's really good. And I thought, well, you never led me wrong so far, so I will do it. And my wife and I liked it a lot. And uh, you and I have thought about this and talked about it and wrote about it. So we're, uh, so to speak, uh, walking the walk and now talking the talk about this uh, wonderful recommendation. Yeah, I really enjoyed enjoyed the movie. I think we both agree that it's a very, very good movie, but somewhat of a missed opportunity in that it could have been a truly great transcendent movie, given the material. Uh, but the story is pretty straightforward. As you said, it's a true story. So this member of the Soviet GRU military intelligence, a colonel named Oleg Penkovsky, decides that he wants to get information to the West because he views Khrushchev as a bit reckless. And I think he has some thoughts and questions about the Soviet experiment itself, although that the depth of those thoughts and questions are, are unclear. But he makes contact with the West, uh, makes it clear that he wants to reveal some secrets and wants some help and instruction in terms of how to get that information to the West. And so we meet two characters, a member of MI6 named Dickie Franks and a member of the CIA, Emily Donovan, who decide that the best way to get a message to Penkovsky is through this ordinary British businessman uh, named Greville Wynne. Wynn has some sort of consulting company where he represents British manufacturers abroad. And so we know through his history that he's, he's made contacts in Hungary and Czechoslovakia, so has some experience navigating the state bureaucracies and in, in these communist regimes, um, knows that he has to go through committees, right? And so the advantage of using Wynn is that he can just go through his normal routine and he would come across someone like Penkovsky, who, although he is a military intelligence colonel, he has this cover. He represents a kind of scientific research committee. That's his that's his cover job in the Soviet Union. And so they tell they make this offer to win Franks and Donovan do. They say, look, just go to the Soviet Union, go to Moscow, do what you would normally do. Nothing more than that. And you'll come across the guy that we want to get to and he'll tell you what to do. And then you can come home and, and you'll be done. And so that's how the story leaves off. And eventually Penkovsky makes it clear to Donovan and Franks that he thinks Wynn is suitable for an even greater, more significant role, actually being the courier, the person who would gather these documents and get them out of Moscow. I think the film does a wonderful job of portraying Wynn's initial reluctance and naivete and surprise at being asked to do such a thing. He embraces this first trip to Moscow because I think it's emphasized to him that he need do nothing more than what he normally does. He says, fine, I'll do it. When they tell him that they want him to actually be a courier, he's very offended, shocked, has no interest in it, but ends up being sort of emotionally blackmailed into doing it. But the story of Wynn is really interesting because it shows you the potential evolution of this naive man of commerce into a, a real British patriot who puts himself and his family and other people at risk in order to do something that he thinks is quite important. As you said in your introduction, Titus, it's the story of a friendship. Penkovsky is brilliantly portrayed by this Georgian actor, Merab Ninitsa, 
we sort of want more of him. We want more backstory of him, more time with him on screen to understand his motivations and his evolution. So that's where the movie, I think, is great movie, but could have been even greater if we had gotten a deeper portrayal of this friendship and been given more insight into Pankowski. But as you said, it's a true story. And I think the director builds the level of uh, anxiety in the viewer in a very nice way. I did not know the story of Penkowski going in, so I won't. Maybe we'll talk about uh, the way the movie ends uh, later in the podcast. But for now, I'll just say it's very good if you don't know the story because it's not at all clear. Uh, I don't think the movie gives anything away. So it's, yeah, it's a very powerful movie, interesting character portrayal of when we admire these two men for slightly different reasons. I guess I'll end by just saying, I think all of the characters are very well done, well acted. There's not a kind of a cringeworthy moment at all in the film where you think, wow, they could have chosen a better person for that role. I think everything is put together very well. Yeah, you're right. It's a very well-crafted movie. It's very theatrical because the director, Dominic Cook, is a theater director. He ran the Royal Court Theater in Britain for a long time. He's involved in the National Theater. He's a very successful and very rewarded theater director for the last 20 years or so. Our audience may know the Hollow Crown series of very successful, talked about British movie adaptations of the British history plays of Shakespeare. The account of the War of the Roses, they don't do everything, but they do most of them. And he directed three of those movies, including Richard III. This is really his first, or, or maybe actually his second movie, but his first one that deserves mention. He has moved to cinema from the theater in his 50s, and uh, he brings to the portrait of the private life of a British gentleman or the privacy or the secrecy of this life of espionage in London, in Moscow, etc. The craft of the theatre, the staging, the relations between actors. There is a, a certain intimacy that carries a lot of gravity at the same time. It's often serious. It's often unnerving. That's the sort of quality you expect in a theater play when you have to have this kind of intimacy with the stage, precisely because, you know, it's all fake. They're just actors on a stage. Mm. And so it makes the movie very effective. And so in a way, I think we are not used to anymore. A hundred years ago, cinema was to a large extent uh, adaptations of theater plays or inspired by theater. Nowadays, people don't often even think of the connection. But here, since the director comes from theater, the connection is somewhat more obvious and somewhat more powerful. He really believes in getting these actors to commit to their part and to convey emotionally what's happening at one moment or another in the plot. And so, yes, as you said, the Georgian actor who portrays Spankowski, Ninidze, has done a, a remarkable job. He's just a magnetic guy who at the same time has a kind of ironic distance about him. As you say, we like to see this guy. We would like to know more about these things. He has enigmatic gestures. He is a picture of subtlety and understatement that is exactly of the opposite kind of British understatement because he has to shut up or he will die. The movie opens with a speech by Khrushchev, who is filmed and acted to be a little on the brutal side and to suggest perhaps even a bit of inebriation. And I think that's true of Khrushchev, despite yeah. the liberal idea that Khrushchev was the nice guy that we could all reason with and he was the good one. He was not. The movie gets that right from the beginning. He is speaking, of course, next to a statue of Lenin that opens the movie. And then the camera just pans from him on the podium to the table next to him where the dignitaries of the USSR are. And so you can tell how important is our man, Penkovsky. Well, he's not the first, he's not the third, he's like the fifth or seventh in line. That is a hierarchy. It's a silent thing that we are not used to as Westerners, but it is very real. A subtle but a real indication of the importance of this very meddled World War II hero who then turned to the GRU and military intelligence. And in that moment, you see him smile, an enigmatic smile at what Khrushchev is saying and applauding as everybody does exactly on cue half a beat after the last word comes out of the tyrant's mouth. What does he think about all this stuff? Later, we learn that he's a bit scared about this stuff and his judgment of Khrushchev is good judgment. He knows that the man's a moron and somewhat dangerous. Obviously, Americans did not know that. British intelligence did not know that either. And yet this guy cannot say it out loud. 
He has to be discreet. He has to act this way. Then you see how it turns further into his character that these habits of shutting up and controlling your emotions in order to stay alive transfer, of course, to the work of espionage. It's not just how you survive communist tyranny or get high up in the party hierarchy, but it's also how you survive as a spy. And it's also something to do with his personality at a deeper level. You get a sense from this actor that he has a certain reserve with his wife and with his child as well. He can't tell them what it means to be a communist of importance. He can't tell them what it means to be a spy, of course. And yet he does love his family. We see him develop trust with the American and British spies he has to deal with and above all with Greville Wynne. And this gradual revelation somehow makes the man's secret seem more worthwhile because you can take him more seriously. You get a sense of the gravity of what he's doing and the fact that he is not merely playing a role or performing. He is acting in a high political drama. He's the only one who is truly aware of the stakes since he knows the secrets and he knows he's risking his life and perhaps execution of his family too, not just of himself. That's where the movie starts. But of course, the biggest performance is Benedict Cumberbatch's Greville Wynn. The movie is told from his point of view, so that in a way it's also told from our point of view. We don't know much about Cold War espionage and neither does he. He's a bit of a loser compared to the exigencies of espionage. He's not an action hero. He's not some kind of mastermind. He's not involved in skullduggery and doesn't wish to be. In the beginning, he feels his inferiority and it nags at him, but he also feels that he it would be a shame. It would be in some yeah, sense humiliating. Yeah, the MI6 officer even drives that point home where I think I think when, you know, says something like, are you sure you really you're 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 positive you just want me to, you know, do my normal routine. And uh, Frank's the MI6 guy says something like, uh, look, Greville, you're you're a slightly overweight, you know, average businessmen who had a very undistinguished World War II record, right? We <laughs> were not that confident about you other than just to, to go to Moscow and let this guy make contact with you. So they really kind of drive home the point, his, uh, the point of his unsuitability for this, for this kind of work at the beginning of the movie. Yeah, exactly. Like that's the ordinary man. Uh, he is not fit for war, he, as you pointed out. He had never even seen combat, actually. He's a patriot. He's a British patriot. He's a British gentleman, but he's not a man of action. He's not even fought the war. But uh, precisely that ordinariness recommends him because he, he will be despised not just by many people, but also by Soviet authorities. He's such a loser. They will not take him seriously. And that gives him an opening. And there you see something about democratic heroism. Part of it comes from the fact that uh, democratic heroes are easily held in contempt. But contempt is a mistake. It leads you to underestimate your adversaries. And, uh, and so he has an opportunity to learn tradecraft and to steal his nerves and to prepare for his fate. It's, uh, it gives him time to prepare and to become a, a spy, which people think he never could be. And indeed, his own uh, MI6 uh, friend or acquaintance tells him, uh, you're such an incompetent person that, of course, we believe you'll be perfectly safe. We would never trust you otherwise, <laughs> which is paradoxical and it's very funny. But of course, it's also true. Um, the, so what the, what do you think accounts then for the change? We have this so the first scene. I, I like to put these scenes together. You have the first interview with him where they have lunch, you know, and they say, "Just go to Moscow and do what you normally do. Um, we want nothing more than that. You know, you're a, you're an otherwise incompetent person, so just do this minimal thing." And he kind of says, "Okay," and he's this dopey guy. Just goes to Moscow and does what he's told. And then when when in the next uh, sort of interview comes around, Emily Donovan, the CIA officer, really uh, he refuses right to be a courier when they when they put that on the table, and she says, um, "Greville, do you do you know how long it takes to get from your office um, to your son's school to your to your flat, and do you know about the integrity of the bomb shelters?" And you know, really tries to emotionally blackmail him into thinking if you don't do this nuclear war could be the result uh so maybe titus we should talk about why we think um what changes in when that he he says yes um he eventually says yes to to embracing this role as courier even though he's he's shocked and refuses initially and further donovan knows that he will say yes right um I think Dickie Frank says something like, oh, we'll be better off without him after he refuses. And, and she says, oh, no, he'll do it. 
So what do you yeah, think? She's um, <laughs> from her point of view, there's this scene later on in the movie when she talks with her American boss and she says, yeah, it's actually easy to work with these British guys. You just have to flatter them. Then they feel that they're the superior partner to the younger nation, America, that has no experience in world affairs. So they'll patronize you, but they'll be very helpful. They think some of that is true also with this thing she says to win. I'll observe quickly. It's a very American thing to do to get the facts straight and to do signals intelligence, spy on this guy's family enough to know where the wife lives, where the kid goes to school, where he is at work and what the distances and times. And the, as you're saying, the fallout shelter, like would your family survive a first strike? Yeah. And uh, it's a very American and thing when, says how dare you it's a very british answer right it's <laughs> outraged modesty and they attacked his privacy they attacked his integrity but i think she's also provoking him to be a man how wouldn't you do something if it's about your wife and kid of course you'd do everything you can of course you should even risk your life in a way it's as you very well put it emotional blackmail but that too involves like why does it work on what emotion does it play? It's his manliness, it's his protectiveness for his wife and for his child. He is outraged in the moment, but I think in a certain way it speaks to him. You see this characterization, this is the best part of Cumberbatch's role that he gets, that somehow in an ordinary English businessman who didn't even distinguish himself in the war or see action, there's an Arthurian knight waiting to come out. Maybe he's looking for something to show his nobility, to prove himself. Yeah. It seems like only this lady realizes it at the beginning. But then I think that's also a lot of his friendship with the Russian spy. This guy is just in business. Now, you need to learn certain things in business. We learned that Greville has mastered the art of deception in terms of flattery. He always has to flatter people on their golfing trips and on their other outings so that right, they will feel right. the better. They will feel superior. They will underestimate him, but also give him what he wants, i.e. the contract. He gets the jobs that he needs. He is such a good salesman because he makes people feel he's superior. And that turns out will be actually very useful in his life as a spy, where people have to constantly underestimate him and he has to look like the big, dumb British guy. But it also teaches him, of course, a very British thing to control his emotions. Mm. He's already prepared to perform much better than people realize. And of course, Benedict Cumberbatch, who also has the benefits of an English superior education, also knows what it does to you. It teaches you a lot of reserve. It teaches you to perform. It teaches you to be an actor of yourself that prepared centuries of Englishmen for public service, for self-denial. Yeah, yeah. He is able, given this training, to take on the deception involved in spying. But I think also at the level of motive, both the American CIA lady and the Russian spy, they see in him a certain need to shine, a certain need to prove himself through nobility, through personal risk. And they indeed turn out to be right. Nobody else sees this in him, but he is wanting to prove patriotic, maybe even heroic. Yeah, that uh, I hadn't thought of that. I think the movie initially presents you with the idea that the world, the worlds of commerce and the world of politics are so different and, and suggest quite, quite disparate kinds of virtues. But I, I think you've made a great case to to the effect that some of the skills that Wynn possesses uh, from his from his uh, business, uh, his world of business, are actually turn out to be quite quite useful and, and to the advantage he emphasizes later in the uh, in the movie. The, I think he says, you know, openly, it's my job to make my clients happy. You know, it's not it's not so easy. Uh, so that's very interesting. Um, I was thinking too. At, at the beginning of the movie, right, you, you, you know, have this sense of the, of the asymmetry between how the Soviets view commerce and how the West views commerce. There's a level of autonomy, obviously, that they let the, the you know, the West let, lets um, its um, corporate titans travel where they want and make contracts where they want, where the Soviets, of course, would do no such thing. And the Soviets think that they can take advantage of the greed of the capitalists, right? By, by using their products and um, for, for their own, you know, state-owned manufacturing companies and all this um, sort of let the useful idiots, right? Give us technology. But, uh, but as you point out, that turns out um, <laughs> to enable uh, this, this uh, spy to get out all sorts of secrets. So that even that sort of, they think they're turning the capitalist greed to their own account, but uh their sort of naivete about the potential 
political potential of these men of commerce turns out to be their undoing uh, to, an, to a degree. So it's, I, I think the movie does a great job of, of kind of making you think about the, these twin worlds of, of commerce and politics and how they, they interact. Yeah, that's a very good point. I guess that is the fundamental thing in the movie. We live in commercial republics and the Soviet Union was the opposite of that. It was just as bureaucratic, granted, but it was incredibly militarized and full of espionage, of course, especially against the people of the Soviet Union in their various countries. There is a deep opposition there and uh, the movie explores the character of this man of commerce who is a respectable English man, but in no way distinguished to try to show that, you know, the English were not as weak as they seemed. And these private citizens who are not making public shows at parades or in other ways of their patriotism might have convictions that will lead them to act and will enable them to act. They'll have a certain skill too and a certain daring. There are things that are simply not obvious in us that are there that seem to come from the fact that we somehow have privatized much of public life. With the Soviets, it just goes too far. Everything is a public pretense of virtue, and it's mostly lies. So almost all of it lies, although, I mean, it can't be completely licensed. The system worked for the lifespan of a man, let's say. Like people had to get up in the morning and do the job. We don't have public professions of virtue or didn't until this recent woke nonsense. But why? You know, Why is it so privatized? There must be something suppressing it in a certain way. And you could say it's the authority that private life has for us. That's part of what's so subtle about the movie that in the Soviet Union, public life imposes a kind of censorship and you have to pretend. But with this guy, you see that in private life, he has to pretend. He can't tell his wife that he is auditioning for the role of hero, possibly martyr for his nature. He's got to stay a secret. But it's not just that. It's that his uh, wife, who is also played very well by Jesse Buckley, grows ever more suspicious of him, the more secretive, so to speak, he becomes, as though it wouldn't be possible that he'd be up to any good. Not even his wife suspects him of any high motives. And why is that? Well, we underestimate ourselves. The Soviets despised us because we underestimated ourselves. We never make much of the deepest calling of politics, which is love of honor. Obviously, in a democracy, you can't have that much honor or that many honors. But still, it acts on people. It makes men get involved, even in dangerous things. There's a kind of secrecy imposed by our egalitarian and commercial way of life, even when it comes to the kinds of virtues you would expect in a man of commerce. An ability to negotiate, to dissimulate his own opinions in order to ingratiate himself with strangers, an ability to calculate what's profitable, an ability to figure out the motives of other people and to play on them. These are important parts of not only espionage, but of commerce. And they are important parts of politics, but they are, of course, very morally ambiguous. Is manipulating people a good or bad thing, as you would say today? Well, under democratic terms, we deny that you should ever do such a thing. But even democracy needs spies, for example, or great politicians. And yet those people must be masters of persuasion. Yeah. So in some sense, we're hiding from ourselves, as it were, that we need such men and that there is a touch of greatness in them. Yeah. And he grows to enjoy. I mean, he. I, I think the, the film does a nice job of presenting kind of the contra somewhat contradictory effects of his increasing involvement. Uh, you know, it's it's makes him anxious. Uh, you know, you can see the kind of psychological pressure it puts him under. So when he gets home, his wife notices that he's more secretive. He's he's defensive and he's you know, he's not at all at ease when he's in Moscow, but, you know, he, he hides it pretty well, but he also, you can see, finds it invigorating. He starts to, as, as Sheila, his wife notes, he's, he starts to exercise more and, and she says, oh, and he's so damn energetic in bed now. And her friend, and her friend Tamara says, oh, poor dear. <laughs> I feel so bad for you. So the film does a wonderful job of adding these very sort of understated British comical moments uh, about how the, you know, the, the wife and, and kid and friends are dealing with this new, with this new improved gravel and they don't, they don't quite know what to do with them. Uh, so that's, that's very well done. Um, you know, it's not, uh, obviously the movie is primarily a story about the spy and presents all the pressures and, and anxiety of espionage, but there are these uh, very interesting moments that evoke, um, you know, private life quite well as, as you've emphasized. Yeah, the movie goes far to suggest that this man was just a private citizen. 
he may have thought of himself as a gentleman, golfing, is at the club, look at his tie, look at his thin mustache, right? Trying to impersonate the pre-war gentleman at that. But he's anonymous. He's not a rich guy. He has not achieved anything. He doesn't have special ambitions. He's just an ordinary guy with a family. He lives in a, a little whitewashed row house, same as all the other ones on that street. And they're all very neat. And it's not the bad part of London. It's a good part of London, but they're all of a kind. All those people there are sort of the same. It makes it hard, granted, to take this guy seriously. He seems like a bit of a joker at the beginning, not somebody you'd ever respect at any rate. But it also makes it possible to explain to yourself why there are not just hidden resources in him, but in a way, a need to distinguish himself. You know, maybe it's not enough for him. Yeah. He's not that great at handling it, but that too helps. If you're on your first business trip to Moscow in the year of our Lord, 1959 or 60, and you're a bit nervous, that's very plausible. That's very believable. You should be a bit nervous. It would be really weird if you were, in fact, right. that would arouse right. more suspicion. So even though his weaknesses work out to his advantage in giving him plausibility and time to prepare, but in as much as he's aware of them, as you say, also he decides to become manlier. The risk to his life does get him excited. Obviously, he loves his wife and that's part of it. But also, he wants to be stronger. This is a man who realizes pain is coming and he had better be prepared. And the movie shows you that from our perspective as civilians, private citizens in private lives, none of us have to do heroic things. Nobody's preparing to be a hero. It looks very weird and very comic. And mm -hmm. it's just not at all plausible. It's hard to explain why we would even watch that kind of movie. Well, it's because this guy is itching to be a hero. There's something inside of him growing there, a love of nobility. That's a fascinating thing. It's, yeah, I mean, yeah. it's not part of our public life largely, but still secretly we love this stuff. And, uh, so, and, and so just to move the plot along, Donovan and Frank's, I think both understand that this relationship between Pentosky and, and, and Wynn cannot go on for too long. You know, they, they understand, um, you know, the efficacy in a certain way of the KGB and what, what they will eventually find out. And so um, together with Wynn, they, they contrive the idea that they, they should find an escape route uh, for Penkovsky should he want to defect. Uh, and so they start putting that together. Um, the relationship continues. And he, from here on out, we'll, we'll, I guess I'll put the spoiler alert uh, on the table um, when goes to Moscow, he comes back to his hotel room. He discovers that his Russian English dictionary is placed in a position where he had not himself placed it. So he, you know, is smart enough to realize that someone has been in, someone has been in his hotel room. And then from Penkovsky, uh, we, we learn that he was expected to go to a trade delegation meeting in London, a second meeting, but his bosses, um, he, he learns through a secretary that he's not, his bosses don't think it's, he needs to go. That moment is very brilliant, um, brilliantly acted on, on Penkovsky's part because he's, um, he, he sort of gives off the appearance of being completely unperturbed by this information. But at that very moment, we know that he knows that the KGB knows <laughs> what he's been up to. Uh, once, he, once he knows he's not, he's not going to be allowed to go to London. So at that point, the uh, the movie uh, moves to to kind of its third act and and then the question is can they get Penkovsky Penkovsky out um, Franks and Donovan at this point well I guess Franks especially thinks they probably can't we can't let Win go back to Moscow because it's too dangerous the jig is up uh, as far as as far as Win is concerned with the KGB so. We're just going to keep him at home. And then it's Wynn who, who decides um, that he should go back because he's the only one who can get to Penkovsky and present him with the plan uh, for his and his family's extraction. Um, Franks, the Britishman, says, this is a crazy idea. I want no part of it. Um, Donovan, the American, says, I'll help you do this. I will go to Moscow. And that moves us to the... Uh, to the third act where, where we see them try to get Pankowski out of, out of the country. Yeah, so this is about a two-hour movie, and smack in the middle, these two things happen. It's obvious that the clock is running out for Oleg Pankowski. As you say, it's beautiful acting. This guy, Merab Ninice, he was in one Oscar-winner movie. 20 years ago, there was this German movie, a memoir of life in Africa called Nowhere in Africa. So, you know, he has a certain notoriety, but I don't think most people are aware of him. 
And it's beautiful acting for a man to be facing his death sentence in such a way, not even nonchalant, but the kind of boredom you expect in a bureaucratic situation where one decision was just changed. Of course, some boss somewhere changed something and it happens. Yet he knows that, yeah, it's his life. And of course, it might be his family's fate. So there's a certain beauty in his reserve, a nobility. The other thing, of course, that happens in the middle of the movie is the Cuban Missile Crisis. And so the latter half of the movie has this double tension in world politics. There's a question, what will Americans do once they learn? And on the other hand, for these people, what will happen to Win and what will happen to Penkovsky? The great scene and this small, intimate portrait of friendship between these men who are willing to risk their lives together for a cause that they will not be remembered for this. There's not much in it for them. It's a riveting latter half of the movie. And right at that point, the danger, so to speak, for espionage becomes obvious. The Americans and the British suck at espionage. Right? They're very good at spying on Americans and British people, maybe, but they really suck at espionage in World War II and afterwards, especially in the Cold War. There were so many high-level people in Britain and in the CIA in America that were double agents, that were destroying all sorts of things, and Americans were absolutely incompetent. The CIA is great at protecting the reputation of the CIA, and the best friends of the CIA are the people who think it's the devil on earth, because that gives this allure of power, this charm that they can do anything. Yeah. But uh, actually, they're very incompetent in human intelligence, espionage as we think of it, not the machines, but the people, not signals intelligence, but human intelligence, they suck at it, always have. Yeah, the, the film even suggests that the, the way that the Soviets found out that Penkovsky was giving away this information was through a British double agent. Yeah, that's true. There was also an American double agent at the NSA, John ah. Dunlap. The Soviets were, in fact, busy trying to figure out how can they destroy Penkovsky without letting the British and the Americans know that they know what has been happening. Ah. And, uh, <laughs> the problem, of course, is that if the Soviets just shoot him, then the British and the Americans, however stupid they are, they're not that stupid. They will realize somebody leaked. There's a mole. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So they have mm-hmm. to find a way to arrest him without incriminating their molds in America and in Britain. Again, the CIA, the MI6, absolutely incompetent people, crazy. Uh, thank God America didn't need too much of that to go through the Cold War to triumph. But it also shows you indeed that these people were taking risks much worse than one assumes. They did not have competent help. And of course, all the help that the British, the Americans, especially actually, said is the CIA that are trying to save Penkovsky and to save Win as well. Uh, yeah, they suck at it. The plan fails because they're absolutely incompetent people. Incompetent, incompetent, incompetent. You can never overestimate the incompetence of the CIA. It's a very good rule of how to go through life. Malicious maybe, but also very incompetent. And so yeah, it, it all falls apart and then there's this terrible danger for half the movie. That's why, of course, the Cuban Missile Crisis is resolved. Part of that was information got from this Soviet GRU colonel. He had sent enough plans of strategy, of doctrine, of technical details about what the missiles are, so that when they saw what was happening, they realized. He did not leak anything specific to the Cuban plan, but it helped the CIA and President Kennedy to realize what was happening. And of course, perhaps an even bigger contribution was Penkovsky showed the Americans and British that the Soviets were much weaker than they seemed. Americans and British people were very incompetent again. And also a little on the cowardly side, all these people in espionage and high politics and so on, they were inclined to overestimate the power of the Soviets in terms of intercontinental ballistic missiles. And this guy shattered that treasured delusion and allowed Americans to be somewhat more confident. I mean, it's Kennedy, like he was a coward and with a glass jaw, but still he, he was braver in the circumstances and Americans did not back down in Cuba entirely. I mean, they lost Cuba, so that's a big deal, but at least they got rid of the Cuban missile. So that was also something. And so on this stage of international espionage, if you understand the danger that these people face from Britain and America because of the communist penetration of intelligence, you begin to see that they are doomed. What these people are doing is damn near suicidal. Penkovsky was one of very few high-ranking people to give information to America to become double agents because it was a deadly thing to do. Mm -hmm. The KGB was very dangerous, but the CIA was more dangerous. You could control, I guess, to an extent like Penkovsky did, what's happening in Moscow. You cannot control what some double agent in America at the NSA or in London at MI6 will do to you. The movie deals with this in a way very well. It just shows you in a throwaway scene, there's a double agent who is going to sign these people's death warrants if he gets a chance. And it's just something that happens. It's not special. It's Wednesday. It's just Wednesday to them. 
Yeah, yeah. Why? Because these people suck at their jobs. Espionage is not something English and American people are able to do well. It's a very big political problem. And it's important to know these things. The movie is not good on this side. It's not able or willing. And it doesn't have the courage, not just the knowledge to tell you that the CIA and MI6 were just absolutely incompetent. Here's another thing. So uh, one story about why did the CIA go to MI6 to get help with getting information from Penkovsky when he had contacted the CIA. The U.S. embassy in Moscow didn't want to do it. That's why. So, you know, there you go. And another thing, which is, again, the opening of the movie and very, very true. How did the CIA get this super important spy? He just walked into them. He just got to these American students and told them, take this to the embassy right now. And he got lucky. It was not the CIA. It was not high-level government espionage. It was not secretive something. It was just that this Russian guy really wanted to risk his life to get these documents across. That's the other side of things, that Greville Wynn has certain moral virtues, not just his shrewdness as a businessman. He is a patriot and he's willing to risk his life. He wants to become a manly man. And you see him like put his head willingly in the noose. As you were saying, what a transformation in this dude. He looks like a mouse in the beginning. And midway through the movie, you see that, yeah, he wants to put his head in the noose if that's what it takes to stick to his friend. It's astonishing. He really believes in what he's doing. He believes in it more than all the other people, strangely enough. But those are moral qualities. They're not intellectual qualities. These people have no competence. (laughs) There's that that moment where, uh, as I said before, the Franks and Donovan have come to him to present him with a task. And the third act, it's it's Wynn who goes to them and says, we need to get Pankowski out, use me. Um, And and Franks and Donovan have both said... um, you know, things to the effect that the, the world of espionage and intelligence is a world of manipulation where people are used. Penkovsky does not expect you to, to help him. He, he would understand the, the hard truth of, of you walking away and leaving him to his potential execution. Don't, you know, don't worry about it. Uh, and at that moment, uh, when says, you're wrong, uh, the reason I'm doing this is because of my friendship with Pentofsky. He, we owe him, right? This is a matter of, it's a, it's a moral failing on our part if we don't try to get him out. Um, and it, it, and ironically, it's the American um, Emily Donovan, right? Who, who sort of says, yes, we do. So for all her hard, real politic, uh, emotional manipulation, uh, at the beginning, you know, she's the one who embraces this moral uh, imperative at the end. And then it's the British who are presented um, as, as these sort of amoral Machiavellian, we, we just got to let them be executed if that's, if that's what it takes. So it's, it's an interesting change in the, in the relationship between the British, um, between the British and the Americans. Uh, now, at the end, once what you've alluded to the fact that the extraction fails and they're both, both, uh, Wynn and Pentosky are arrested. Um, she, Emily Donovan says something um, back in London to Franks to the effect that uh, you were right. You know, we should never have tried. And, and Frank says something like, no, you, you were right too. In other words, sometimes we have to try things even, if the, even though we know it's going to fail, which was a, a kind of interesting interesting touch, I think, by the, the screenwriter or director. Um, so they, they, neither of them could have had um, high hope that this extraction would succeed, but nonetheless, maybe it was the, the right thing to do uh, anyway. Yeah, this concern with what's right, what duty do you owe, is quite well done in the movie, and it's what sets it apart from so many other Cold War espionage movies, even the ones that are also based on true stories. They tend to be, as I said in the beginning, very cynical, or even if they're not downright contemptuous of questions of justice, they're just overwhelmed by the requirements of espionage, by the risks personally people take. They find it very difficult to leave any room for concerns with fairness, with right, with justice. This movie is not like that. It's not just the portrayal of sneakiness, shrewdness, deception, understatement, all sorts of other dark arts. That's charming. It's not just this Russian spy, this remarkable war hero who turns against the USSR and does it with such some front. I mean, uh, one thing we haven't talked about enough since we can't talk about everything. It's just there's too much in the movie is the way the Russian coaches the Englishman. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, 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 shows him his strong points, reassures him about his weak 
points and guides him along so that they become more alike. You see the alikeness that comes through friendship, the way the British man becomes a better spy and a better man at the same time. You see that in the way in which Grenville improves morally, you can see that the Russian guy must also be morally a good man, even though he has to hide it most of the time. They trust each other implicitly. And of course, this becomes thrilling in the latter half of the movie where the chases and all the drama happen. You get a sense of why should you care about this? I mean, just look at these guys. It's, it's impressive. Male friendship is almost forbidden in our cinema. And so maybe that's why it hits harder when you see it presented. But I yeah. think it's also because of the way it's presented in this movie. It's there everywhere, but they don't make too much of it. It's not a buddy right. cop movie or something. It's uh, and maybe, yeah, maybe Pemkowski becomes a little bit uh, more Western and in, in thinking that uh, his hopes will be fulfilled, right? The one explicit nod to another cold war movie in the film is uh they're in the i think in the moscow subway and uh penkovsky says he wants to he wants to go to montana reminding me of the sam neill character in hunt for an october who says the same thing so it's a kind of funny thing that all all russian all russian defectors apparently want to move to montana I mean, it's amazing, right? Montana <laughs> is an amazing place and it just looks more European than other places. So yeah, I, I get it. But yeah, I thought about Third October too. Also another <laughs> wonderful movie. And this friendship between these two guys, it shows more the intellectual superiority of the Russian who has to plan these things out, who has to judge character, who has to judge the moment and also just teach tradecraft. When do you shut up? When do you just say pleasantries? What to look out for? All of these things. But it also shows something about Greville Wynn, about this English fellow looking in some strange way for nobility. He is able to learn these things. He cares about them. He tries to achieve as much as he can in this regard. And it leads him to this point where he thinks, yeah, of course I'll sacrifice myself if that's what it comes to. He has no idea. He hopes maybe there's a good chance that you can walk away from this. He's been reassured that the worst comes to worst for him is not the gulag, worst comes to worst for him is not the execution. Of course, I mean, how much can you believe such reassurances? But, you know, these spy people have told him not to be too afraid. He can feed his hopes to some extent on what these people have said to him. But nobody has done anything to make him more daring. That all comes from him, from this concern with justice that comes from his friendship. And there yeah. is this moment where you see what's unique to the movie, as I was saying, is that the morality of the Englishman, the intellectual ability of the Russian, their friendship that makes them grow more alike, also suggests something about a ground of justice that is higher than something like liberal democracy. America and England come out as clearly morally, politically superior to the Soviet Union. I mean, it's not even a question. The movie starts with Lenin and Khrushchev and how screwed up this entire world is. All these public professions they make, and like these are crazy people who are going to risk nuclear war because they're monsters. The movie is in no doubt about that. But England and America don't come off that great. They're not quite what you'd expect if you think England is a kind of place where people like Griffith win grow up. This man, in his moment of trial, he has reached a certain height morally and intellectually through his friendship with this other man. That's a form of justice that's superior to what's available, not just to people at MI6, but maybe to ordinary people. Like, there's a reason his wife doesn't understand him. She sets her sights quite low. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's something contemptible in that. Yeah, there's... she she's, she's, uh, certainly doesn't suspect him of playing any political role, but then when... Franks and Donovan have to come to see her once Wynne has been uh, seized by the, the Soviets and, and they don't explicitly tell her, you know, what he's, what he's been doing, but she suddenly figures it out like, oh, this, this must have been what he has been up to. And there's this wonderful scene with, uh, with between Donovan and, and the wife, Sheila, where she doesn't, again, doesn't tell him explicitly that he's been the spy, but, but says what your husband needs from you now is for you to become an actor. So anytime you interact with the press, anytime you talk to your friends, you have to give off the impression that uh, your naive husband, Greville, could, couldn't have had any role in this. But of course, now she has this knowledge that that he did this and she she understands it perfectly well because she saw the transformation that the viewers of the movie did um so that was a kind of interesting touch where she has to make her private um role as as his you know devoted wife into a kind of public um political role precisely to try to to save him because the the soviets have to become convinced 
that the British um, regard him as an unwilling, naive participant in being a courier. And Wynne knows that he has to give that um, impression to them um, from his prison cell or else he's probably going to be be shot and those you know those scenes of him in in the in the moscow prison are striking he spent he probably spent what a year year and a half um in one of those prisons and and part of you thinks well for all his transformation could he be capable of enduring this you know and part of you wants to say probably not but um again he sort of surprises you uh, again and and is able to endure and um and survive and and come out of um, come out of prison through a, at the end of the movie, right? There's a prisoner exchange, which is precisely how they had hoped it would be resolved that the Soviets uh, will give up when if the British give up a, a Soviet spy. And so there's an exchange, I think, in April of of 1964, uh, and and he comes he comes home. Um, but it's yeah, it's just a at, I guess at every turn, when surprises you, and that's that's one of the charms of the of the movie. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, he ended up in the Lubyanka. Not easy. No. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's a deeply moving part of the movie. You can see also what attracted Benedict Cumberbatch to this. The role has uh, a complexity and the subtlety that it's just, you don't see this much in our movies. So you can see why he wanted to do it. Even aside from the fact that I suspect he just likes portraying British nobility. He believes in this and it may be why he recognized it so easily. I think it would take the audience of the movie a lot, maybe up to the end to prove it. And maybe you'd want to watch the second time to believe it. But I think he saw it fairly quickly. And that's why he wanted to do the film. As you say, just think about the perspective of the wife. She had been, in a way, contemptuous of him, in a way, suspicious of him, had looked down on him. And the very moment when she begins to admire him and feel bad about herself for the way she had treated him and the way she had thought of her husband, she learns that now she has to pretend that she is that housewife who kind of despises her foolish English husband. He's an eccentric, a bit of a loser, not much. It's a good dramatic moment. She has to now put on the performance of what she used to do sincerely. And it's partly a penance humbling her to realize that her husband is just better than she is and she has to do something for him and that what she has to do for him is partly showing as it were her uglier side but it's politically necessary that's another part of espionage that's intelligent and well done as you were saying she gets instruction like if people get a sense that Greville Wynn is an important man he will have to be executed. Mm-hmm. The Soviets cannot afford the humiliation. You're forcing them to kill him if you tell the truth. Yeah. It's and so she has to pretend that he's a nobody at the very moment when she begins to realize that he is a worthy man, that he is worthy of admiration, her admiration. She at the same time has to swallow her guilt and she has to show a kind of virtue of her own, a discretion and a willingness to keep private things private and to do what's publicly required in a difficult situation. And of course, manage her child for, if for years he doesn't see his dad right. now, without being able to explain. It's not just that the Soviets force Penkovsky to treat his wife and girl in a certain way. They end up unwittingly forcing Greville's wife and child to go through a version of the same drama of secrecy and lies and public professions that are absolutely empty but dangerous. So she begins to live out a kind of suffering and to be part of his fate. And I think that brings them closer together and makes it possible to see, again, that they loved each other, that they were husband and wife, not strangers, after straining their marriage for the two years or so of his espionage activity. So there's quite a lot of emotional traumatization of British life and of character, what is expected of men and women and what it might mean to behave in a virtuous and intelligent way in a time of testing. The finale is, I think, both emotionally satisfying and insightful. It reveals what we are as a society and what we go through. Yeah, the the other um, comment I wanted to, to make was about uh, Rachel Brosnahan's uh, performance uh, in in this role of Emily Donovan, the CIA, it strikes me, and I watched the movie a, a second time, um, and it's in, sort of the importance of that role and the power of that role has has grown on me. If you think about the world of intelligence, right, and you see this, I mean, I think you've rightly emphasized the limits and incompetence of of the CIA. She comes across as as sort of pushing the reluctant uh, higher ups in the CIA to take what Pentosky has to say seriously and, you know, trying to, to make a play in a risky situation 
where they might be more risk averse and not, and not take it seriously precisely because they underestimate the, the Soviet Union. But if you think about the world of intelligence, right, it, it demands a kind of regularization and bureaucracy precisely because you know you need kind of replication of information because you, you suspect everyone is lying, <laughs> right? So, so you can't rely on individuals. You, you have to kind of cast your net wide and try to gather as much information as you can and sort of not put your eggs in one, in one basket. Um, on the other hand, you need individuals to make judgments about people in order to make the thing work in the first place, right? And, and so I think she um, sort of brings home that, that latter point that, that she sees something in Wynn, um, she sees the potential of Pinkowski and, and uh, you know, makes that case to her superiors. And, and you see in the way she treats the wife, you know, the admiration that she has for Wynn and the power of that role reminded me a bit, and now I'm blanking on the film, but what was the film about uh, the intelligence that leads to the assassination and, and killing of bin Laden? Zero Dark Thirty, yeah, the, the portrayal of the real CIA woman, CIA officer in that movie is a kind of similar, um, similar portrayal where she, you know, she sees the potential of certain people and, and um, to kind of change the dynamics on the ground and takes a certain amount of risk and goes against the kind of general thrust of the bureaucracy. So it just, it just strikes me when thinking about her that that, that reminded me of, of, of that film and the, the portrayal of that, um, of that officer. Um, and so there's, you know, there's more, even as, as much as we've emphasized the, the power of Wynn and the friendship between Wynn and Pankowski and um, Mirab Nenitsa's great portrayal of Pankowski, I think the minor roles in the movie are also really, really well done and, and powerful and, and, I don't know, deeper than you might, than you might think at, at first watch. Both ladies are very good actors, Jesse Buckley and uh, then Rachel Brosnahan, who is the marvelous Miss Maisel. She's famous for this other period piece sitcom on Amazon. One hopes that their careers will flourish. Uh, I think the role, however, is completely made up. I doubt that there was this lady at the CIA in yeah, 1959 yeah. or 1960. It's just something people do for the sake of drama. As for yeah. the other movie, the Zero Dark Thirty thing, uh, I think that's also in a way similar portrayal because it's all about how incompetent the CIA is, right? These people are just the worst on the planet. It's not just they didn't see 9-11 coming. It took them 10 years to get Bin Laden killed. Absolutely incompetent. But worse, right? I mean, it's the CIA. So if you remember, there's a scene in that movie, the shakeup scene for the woman. She is in Afghanistan. The moment a walking source blows up the CIA yeah. headquarters in Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a real thing that happened because the CIA is absolutely incompetent. They're morons, they're cowards, they're arrogant, they spend vast amounts of money, and they just get themselves blown up by a walk-in source. If you wonder what that is, it's a guy who walks in to be your source. Why do you trust him? Because you're a moron and you're incompetent, and then he blows you up. That's what really happened. And it's right there in the movie, and people, uh, it's a strange moment of reality hitting you in the face. Not that people notice, I don't know, but it's right there and it's very real strange but that's the situation and in a certain way you know it, it adds a kind of touch of heroism of romanticism to these women they have no idea what the hell they're doing but they're they're certainly trying to the point that they're risking their lives yeah um and so maybe to to wrap things up we we both admire the movie and um you know regard the portrayal of of this uh remarkable uh, historical uh, action, you know, thing, thing that actually happened that is just astounding. Right at the end, we learned that Penkovsky, with uh, with the help of Wynn, got over five thousand documents out of the country. I mean, so so just an astonishingly successful uh, intelligence trove for for the for the West. Um, but we think the movie could have been better. Um, Penkovsky. Again, I think that that's that's the kind of huge missed opportunity is that he's he's portrayed in such an interesting way that you wanted more of him. You wanted to learn a little bit more about, you know, how he goes about navigating his daily life as this military um, intelligence officer. Um, you wonder about I mean, you, you get a bit about Hinky and his family, but that could have been interesting. We know that he. Uh, there's reference made that he he played a quite heroic role in World War II, um, so there was there's a lot to lot a lot more that could have been made of him 
um, to give the, the friendship and portrayal of the friendship a more reciprocal, symmetrical um, character in, a, in the same way that, that you see in the, in the great movie, The Lives of Others, um, both uh, Dryman and, and Beesler, right? It's, it's sort of a, a, nice, a nice pair. Um, that said, I, that's all very difficult to pull off, I think, as a, as a filmmaker, right? You got to make hard choices. You don't want to make the movie three hours. You can't afford to make the movie three hours. So you have to do, you would have to do all that with Penkovsky with, you know, three minute scenes here or there and sacrifice, you know, maybe some of the depth that you've given with, with the portrayal of Wynn. Um, so I can, you know, I can appreciate how difficult it, it would have been. And, you know, maybe our, maybe our gripes are a bit unreasonable. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, this is not a great movie. Lawrence's Arabia is a great movie, but you know, it's three hours and change. So getting the money, getting the stars, getting the, it's not easy. Ambition leads mostly people to wreck, not to make another great movie. Still, it's a compliment for a movie to see that it's not just good, it's also inspiring. That makes you think this could have been touched by greatness, that there's something there that they could have dwelt on this unusual friendship between these two men and what it teaches them about what they're dealing with and about what is required in a certain sense to help save a terrible situation. This contributed in uh, an important way to the decisions made during the Cuban Missile Crisis and therefore to helping America, helping peace, helping civilization. It has a kind of great ambition, but it can't quite get there. For a movie especially that starts in Russian, in Russia with Khrushchev's speech and high-ranking types around him, you never get any view of what does life look like for this guy, like who is really Oleg Benkovsky. His father was a white in the civil war in Russia. He was not a red. Mm. Then, you know, Benkovsky went to artillery school and was an officer in World War II. And then from this action hero life, indeed, in the GRU, he had some diplomatic experience. He had been stationed in Turkey in the 50s. You could say that he should be the hero of the movie. For us, the British man is the hero of the movie because interesting as Penkovsky is, we live in the world democracies and we have a reasonable and important interest in the citizenry and the heroism that liberal democracy calls forth. But you would want to know, you know, how different this other world is and what it takes for such a man to grow closer to our way of life. Since you mentioned Red October, there also you see this relationship between a man stuck in Soviet tyranny, Sean Connery, and this all-American Jack Ryan guy played by Oleg Baldwin before he killed somebody on set. There you see a much better contrast of the character of the Americans and of the Russians, the nobility and the possible friendship even between enemies of a high caliber if they have a kind of military greatness in them. They can respect their enemies in a way, even love them. But you also see how different the Soviet system is, which is almost aristocratic, how free-willing in a certain sense the American system is. It allows Jack Ryan to jump around from various parts of Washington or expertise in Navy issues or, you know, just going to this aircraft carrier and trying to figure out the matter on the spot. That kind of freedom and versatility is American. And of course, this notion that your higher-ups will give you an opportunity because if you screw up, it's your head. But if you succeed, on the other hand, uh, you get a promotion. You have opportunity, but it's very risky. So that was a remarkable portrayal of what was at stake in these terms of merit and hierarchy and military achievement in the conflict, because it was able to respect that uh, the Soviets had many problems. First of all, I mean, the Soviet Union was a monstrous tyranny, but that army had to be pretty serious. Americans were not contemptuous of them at the time. And in, in Red October, you see that you could respect these people as enemies. One would have wanted something similar here as well. And uh, as for your note about the lives of others, I think maybe, yeah, that's it. I mean, that, would, that should have been the guiding light of Dominic Cook, thinking about what it means to have a possibility of friendship between somebody who has real virtues and rare virtues, but has been formed by this sort of tyranny, and somebody else who lives and believes in liberal democratic justice, a vision of private life, of family, of business, leading to mutual good, all these things, the very different experience. And yet somehow they might be able to become friends. How? I would like to see that. That's the complaint, so to speak. That's what the greatness would have meant. And hopefully somebody will do this. This is not the only story that can be told. And it's certainly a kind of story that we need more of. So hopefully people will be inspired to watch the movie and they'll appreciate it and they'll look for more such stories. Maybe there'll be a director's cut someday where they give us the 30 minutes that they, they cut out and all those minutes would have been devoted to uh, Penkovsky, who, who knows? <laughs>
I watched it again as well today. I was excited for it. And then I settled down with the movie and it's just so well made. It was a pleasure to watch again since the second time around. I look more safe for directorial decisions. Like you're asking, like, how does he get you to that transformation in Greville's character? How did the director stage this? How could he make this so plausible? And yeah. uh, so I recommend it heartily. I hope people will do more of this sort of stuff. It needs the attention and it deserves the attention. So thank you for recommending it. I was glad to overcome my prejudice against Benedict Cumberbatch and watch this. He did very well. What did he uh, do to earn earn your prejudice against him? That's a story for a, another day. But I can tell you another thing. I mentioned before that he seems to have a predilection for conservatism, for portrayals of aristocracy, nobility, the old England. He was in Parades and the Ford Maddox Ford story. There was a TV series in Britain recently. And there too, he portrayed a very interesting character that didn't get as much attention as it deserved. To, to a certain extent, the TV adaptation is as one would expect a kind of typical liberal corruption of our times. It's not true to Ford Maddox Ford's vision. It's a tetralogy about Edwardian Britain, say, that he wrote in the 20s, and BBC collaborated with HBO on this thing uh, 10 years ago, maybe. Benedict Cumberbatch was in it. And that and other roles show that there is something in this man that wants to come out, so to speak, and there is something of old Britain that uh, still loves nobility. I wish him the best, but uh, I still have prejudice against Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he can uh, turn to, to those more interesting roles and devote himself to them without worry about uh, salary, since he's probably making you know millions of dollars as Doctor Strange, right? He can just make his yep. money with with the portrayal of Doctor Strange and then take up lots of more interesting things in his uh, in his spare time. I'm, I'm sure he's vastly wealthy now, but I believe he was not impecunious to begin with. But this, this would be it. That's my favorite performance. I was very pleased to watch it so much so that I watched it again. All right, Flag, let us close here. You and I have 20, 21 conversations, not exclusively, but mostly on totalitarianism. And this is one of the rare cases where the story has a happy end. And it's a true story. <laughs> a partially uh, so happy, happy ending. Uh, I mean, it, like as much of a happy end as you can get in the, in, in <laughs> it the Cold does, War. It does Soviet end with an situation. execution. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm calling this a win, okay, Flag? <laughs> I'm calling this one a win. <laughs> 50% execution is good. 50%. Oh, there, that is the light note of the graveyard humor on which to end our conversation. Um, all right, Flag, thank you very much for joining me again. And let's do something again soon. We've got something else on our plate for our next podcast. There is more to come. Sounds good. And all the best. Yep, you too.